two weeks ago, um, we were wrapping up our, our study of Second Samuel chapter 18. And just as a quick recap, Absalom had rebelled against uh, David, had taken the throne. David had left Jerusalem and found his way across the Jordan River eventually to find a uh, shelter in one of the cities on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Anticipating that Absalom was going to send an army uh, to try to uh, eliminate David altogether by killing him. That was Absalom's intent, in fact. David had spies in Jerusalem, and that was very helpful for David. And as a result of the information that those spies were able to convey to David, he was prepared for the invasion of Absalom's army once he had gotten all of them together out of all the various tribes. Uh, Absalom had a great deal of support. Uh, There were many that had been persuaded to join forces with him. Uh, He had won the hearts, or actually the Bible tells tells us that he had stolen the hearts of the people. And uh, many of the people thought that he was indeed to be the king of Israel, and they were supportive of that. But as chapter 18 unfolded, we found Absalom was killed in battle by Joab, David's famous general, And as a result of that, the followers of Absalom departed and went back to their tents. Now they didn't really know what to do. Uh, They had sided with Absalom. David won the battle. And the only other possibility now for the kingdom to continue was for them to reinstate David as their king. But how to do that was something that they just didn't have an answer for. So chapter 19 is going to be discussing a lot of that, but there's also a lot of other things that are discussed in chapter 19 that I find of great interest. Keep in mind that there were individuals while David was uh, en route to the eastern side of the Jordan River that were mentioned in chapters 17 and 18, and most of them are going to be mentioned again here in chapter 19. So keep that in mind as we move forward. But let's go ahead and begin our study in 2 Samuel, chapter 19, verse 1. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And remember, that's exactly as it was at the end of chapter 18. We found David crying uh, with his heart out over his son. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Oh, Absalom, my son. Would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, Joab had heard about this fact that David was mourning the loss of his son. And it didn't really settle well with Joab. After all, Joab is the one who actually killed Absalom. Even though David had said, spare my son Absalom. At this point, David doesn't know who did this, and he's weeping over his loss, and Joab is going to come to him, and he doesn't exactly try to uh, help him out very much in this particular situation. It tells us in verse 2, so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. 
For the people heard it said that day that the king is grieved over his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who were ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. So he's continuing to mourn. The people have come back into the city, and instead of experiencing great joy in victory in defeating David's foes, the people are coming back in a mournful sort of way because of David's mourning over his son. They were, as it says here, like a people who were ashamed, stealing away, uh, fleeing from the battle. That was the attitude that most of the uh, warriors had because they were confused. They had won a great victory for David, but yet there was a great deal of mourning going on and they couldn't understand exactly what was happening. But it upset Joab tremendously, as we'll soon see. It says in verse 5, Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Now, I would say that it goes without saying, Joab was very upset at David's attitude toward what had just taken place. Yes, there is reason enough for David to have mourned the loss of his son. He was a man who lost his son, a father who loses his son, is going to be grieving. But he was also the king of the nation, and the nation needed him. He wasn't really coming to that place where he was fulfilling his responsibilities as king. Joab called him to task rather harshly, but I think that harshness was necessary. And I would not accuse Joab of doing anything wrong in this situation. He really did actually help out uh, David in this way. It shook David, and it caused David to realize, I need to do something differently than the way I've been treating my people. And as severe as it was, apparently Joab's um, threats caused David to think and to realize something had to be done quickly. Joab was indeed correct. I believe it was a very right thing for him to have done this. One of the high spots, really, in Joab's career. He basically helped the nation tremendously by bringing David to that place where he needed to turn from his mourning back to helping the people that were his flock. So David did, as Joab instructed. And verse 8, it says, Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, There is a king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, 
The king, referring to David, the king saved us from the hand of our enemies, but he delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. So there's a bit of confusion among the leaders of the people. What are we to do now that Absalom is gone? Yes, David is the king, but he left. He left the city of Jerusalem and fleed, or fled rather, from his son Absalom. And Absalom, in effect, took over the throne of David in Jerusalem for a very short period of time, but they had endorsed it. They had believed it to be the right thing. And now Absalom is dead. What are they going to do? Well, David realizes that there is a bit of confusion among the leaders of the people of the tribes of Israel, including the tribe of Judah. And so he begins the process of bringing reconciliation. And this is a very, very honorable thing that David is going to be doing here, a very wonderful uh, proof of his character and his ability to make things happen on behalf of the people, to bring them together as a people once again. So it says in verse 11, So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to, the, to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house? You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? So he first addressed the situation with Judah. Now Judah, of all the tribes, was probably the most traitorial of all of them because it was indeed the tribe of Judah where Jerusalem is and where Absalom had usurped the throne. The elders of Judah should have taken a stand against Absalom in favor of David, but they did not. So it is a problem for David, and he addresses this tribe of Judah, his own tribe, first of all. And he's wondering, he's hearing rumors about the other tribes wanting to make reconciliation with David, but he's hearing nothing from the tribe of Judah. And he's sending a message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests that were in Jerusalem to find out what the story is, what can be done. And he makes this appeal to the leaders of Judah. And so in verse 13, he also says, And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. Now that seems like a very, very strange statement indeed. Because Amasa, you may recall, was the general in Absalom's army. He was appointed by Absalom to lead the Israeli forces against David. And now David is saying to Amasa, look, I am not going to hold that against you. In fact, I want to appoint you to be my general over my army to replace Joab. Now it seems to me that the only real reason that David would have taken such a sudden turn against Joab is that if perhaps by now he has found out that it was indeed Joab who murdered Absalom. And he doesn't want Joab to remain as his general. Now, unfortunately for David, 
things don't work out exactly as David intended. But he does come and makes this appeal to Amasa, but it also has a secondary effect in that he is actually appointing this man who was once a general against him to lead his army, thereby indicating to the people of Judah that he is not holding any hard feelings against those who were against him. If he's willing to use Amasa in such a way as this, then he's willing to let bygones be bygones, if you will, among all of the elders in Judah. So it must have sent a good message to the people of Judah, a strong message, saying that, look, we can work this out, and I'm not going to hold any grudges, I'm not going to take revenge, we're just going to get back to normal as quickly as we can, and that is, I believe, David's intent in appointing Amasa to this high position. Verse 14 says, So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah. Remember, Absalom stole the hearts of all the men of Judah and Israel. Now it says David swayed the hearts. He's convincing them. Things are going to work out. He is making sure that they understand that there is no hard feeling that he is harboring against the people that had turned against him. But he's swaying their hearts of all the men of Judah. And it says again in verse 14, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. They're willing now to say to David, come back and we'll support you. Verse 15 says, then the king returned and came to Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to go out to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan River. And here we meet another individual that was brought to our attention in our study two weeks ago. The man's name is Shimei. If you remember, Shimei was a Benjamite who was cursing David, throwing stones and dust at David and his men as they were escaping from Jerusalem and crossing the Jordan River. He was cursing his king. And he was saying some very, very bad things talking about the fact that, in his eyes, David had taken the throne of Saul, and, and he's deserving everything that is happening to him. Now in verse 16, now that David is coming back to rule, and Absalom is no longer a threat, in fact, he's dead, obviously, now Shimei is coming to save face. And that's pretty much what we find here in this passage as we look at this. And there's another individual as well that you'll remember who was Zibi. And Zibi was a servant of Mephibosheth. And we'll go into more detail about him as well as we move forward. But verse 16 says, And Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons, and his twenty servants with him. And they went over the Jordan before the king. And then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household, and to do what he thought was good. So David is met by Shimei and by Zibi. And uh, remember, Zibi had implied to David when David was on the run, that Mephibosheth was treacherously against David and joining forces with 
his son Absalom. It was a false statement about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was crippled. He couldn't leave Jerusalem. And when David asked about where Mephibosheth was, it was Zibi who told the lie, saying that Mephibosheth has revolted against you as well. So these two men were not really standing in good standing with David now that he's on his way back to Jerusalem to reign. But they come before him in the hopes of finding forgiveness from their king. The latter part of verse 18 says, Now Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. And then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what went wrong when you... what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king of left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. He's saying, please don't hold any grudges, O king. I'm your servant. You are my king. That's not what he was saying before, but he's saying it now, and he's saying it over and over again. Remember me, your servant, O king. Well, that's an unfortunate thing when people think that they can persuade somebody that they've changed their heart when they really haven't. I'm pretty certain, that, and we'll find out this to be the case later on in our studies in the Old Testament Scriptures, that Shimei did not change his heart against David, but here he's seeking to protect his own life, his own skin, and he's doing it in a way that causes David to perhaps feel sorry for the man. And there's a good reason for David to feel sorry for him. Because this is not what we would call godly sorrow. This is what we would call worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that says, I have offended and I am so terribly grieved over my offense toward you. This sorrow, on the other hand, is a sorrow that basically is admitting I was wrong or admitting that I got caught. It's that kind of worldly sorrow that does not lead to repentance. And again, we'll see later on in our studies that Shimei really was not repentant from his accusations that he had made against David. He's only trying to save face. And for a season, he's successful. He continues on in verse 20, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord, the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, and I think he sees through this man, shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Abishai, which is, by the way, Joab's younger brother, never could have forgiven this man Shimei, even if it's been a sincere effort on his part, which it wasn't. But Abishai wants blood. He's a warrior. And David is trying to make amends. David is not interested in vengeance. David has a kingdom to reign over, and he needs to piece it back together. And he realizes that. So David's response, again, to Abishai is very similar to what it was in the past. It says in verse 22, David said, 
What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Now, he's not only talking to Abishai, but he's also, also talking to Joab as well. Both of the sons are referenced here. And then he says, Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. He made a promise. You're protected as long as I am king. That protection will stand. And he swore to Shimei to make sure that Shimei understood he was indeed under the protection of David, no matter what the sons of Zeruiah had intended. Well, verse 24 brings us back to Mephibosheth. Remember, he's the son of Jonathan. He had been sitting with David in David's uh, palace on a daily basis, eating his bread. David had been merciful to this one and only last descendant of Jonathan, a descendant of Saul. It wasn't his fault that he couldn't leave Jerusalem, according to his story, and that's what we'll be reading next. Verse 24 says, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So he's obviously in a state of mourning over the fact that David had been forced to leave Jerusalem. Those are several weeks that have gone by by now, and Mephibosheth was troubled, apparently, to the extent where he didn't even bother taking care of his only basic human needs. Well, verse 25 says, So it was, when he had come down uh, to Jerusalem to meet the king, and the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, referring to Zibi. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it, and go to the king, because your servant is lame. And he, Ziba, has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God, therefore do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant above those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more to your master of your matters? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. Now remember, when Ziba came to David back in chapter 18, we read that David was angered by the report that Ziba gave him regarding Mephibosheth, and David had given Ziba all of Mephibosheth's land at that time, thinking that Mephibosheth had indeed betrayed him. Now, Mephibosheth tells his part of the story, and David is caught between two different stories by these two men, completely contradicting one another. How is David going to deal with this? He does it with great wisdom. He gives them both a portion of the land. 
That way there's nobody that can say, I was right and you were wrong. They both are given a portion of the land that was Mephibosheth's. Exactly split in half. I'm reminded later on in the story of the nation of Israel, King Solomon is going to have a very, very similar uh, case before him where two women will come to him and they will have been mothers of boys, one of which died when one of the women slept on top of the baby and suffocated him. And that woman took the other woman's child and made it to be her own. And so they both came to Solomon with a request for Solomon to settle the dispute. Which woman was the true mother? Well, when he heard their case, Solomon called for a sword. And he said, take the alive baby and cut it in half and give half to one mother and half to the other mother. And in doing so, he garnered a response from the one true mother. No, Solomon, please don't do that. Let her have the child. And immediately Solomon knew that she was indeed the mother of this boy. Very, very similar kind of a situation here when we look at this response of Mephibosheth, because Mephibosheth, in receiving this decision by David of splitting the the land between the two of them, his response again in verse 30 is telling. It says, Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. I'm convinced that David knew right then and there that Mephibosheth was indeed telling the truth and that Ziba was the one who was lying. But his decision stood. They did split the land it didn't matter at all to Mephibosheth. It only mattered to Ziba. Well, he got more than his fair share in the deal. So he wasn't ever going to complain about losing the other half to Mephibosheth. Well, verse 31, another individual that we saw in chapter 18 is brought back to our attention by the name of Barzillai, the Gileadite. Barzillai was a very, very wealthy man and he helped David out during his short time away from Jerusalem by providing a great deal of resources, food, supplies for David while he was in exile. And it says in verse 31, And Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rogelim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. And he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come across with me, and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. David's inviting Barzillai to enjoy the blessings of his favor in the city of Jerusalem once he's back in control of the territory of Israel. But Barzillai uh, responded and says to the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? 
Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king, and why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Jimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king, and do for him what seems good to you. So Barzillai is saying, look, David, I appreciate the offer so very much, but I'm so old, I wouldn't enjoy the time there in Jerusalem. I can't even taste my food. I can hardly hear anything. I'm too old. All I want to do is go back to my own home in my place where my father and mother died and be buried alongside them. And that was the blessing that Barzillai was requesting of David, and David granted it. But he also had asked if David would consider, instead of Barzillai, to substitute another probably son or grandson or some relative whose name was Chimham. And David said, yes, I'll do that. I'll treat Chimham as I would have treated you. And it's interesting to note that we don't hear anything more about Chimham until the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Chimham is mentioned as living in the area of Bethlehem. So his heritage remained because of the faithfulness of David and the favor that David had shown to this Barzillai. Well, verse 38 says, And the king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. Now things are going pretty well for David. He's already established a connection with the tribe of Judah and also Benjamin, who was really side by side with Judah pretty much throughout the history of the nation. But the other ten tribes, the northern ten tribes we call them, but the other ten tribes haven't yet come to grips completely with the move that is being made to bring David back. They want to, but they didn't know how to. But now that they see Judah is involved in bringing David back, there's a certain amount of jealousy that begins to foment among the ten tribes, and it is made very obvious in this passage that we're about to look at next. It tells us in verse 40, Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. And all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also the half-people of Israel. So not all of Israel, but some of the people of Israel were there with them. Just then, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? You see what they're doing? They're accusing Judah of winning favor from David. David was not a king who showed favoritism. Like any good father, he did not favor one over the other. He treated them all the same. But here, Israel is under the impression that Judah is being given special treatment even though it's said in verse 40 that some of the people of Israel had also been accompanying him on his way from 
the Jordan River. They're accusing the people of Judah to steal David's affection from the northern ten tribes. So that jealousy is going to continue to develop as we move forward from our study tonight. But keep in mind that it began here with the fact that Judah was the ones involved in bringing David across the Jordan, and apparently Israel felt slighted in not being invited to participate. So verse 42 says, So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? They're saying, look, you guys are misled in your accusations. We're not trying to earn favors from David. He hasn't given us any special gifts. He isn't treating us any differently than he would any of the other tribes. We just happen to be his relatives. We've got a connection that really you guys in Israel don't have because he's of the tribe of Judah like we are. He's a descendant of Jesse from Bethlehem of Judah. He's a Judahite. So it made good sense for them to be involved in escorting their relative back to Jerusalem. Verse 43 says, And the men of Judah, or rather the men of Israel, answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. You've only got two. We've got ten shares. We have more of the king in terms of rightful ownership than you do. So therefore, you guys of Judah are misled, not us. So you can see this battle ensuing between the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south over David that they all had rejected at one point, but now want him to be their king. It doesn't end well, as we'll see as we move forward in chapter 20. I don't believe I'm going to go there tonight, though. I'm going to probably just want to end with these final words out of chapter 19. We have ten shares in the king, therefore we also have more right to David than you, they said. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? They're making some valid points, although the points are really unfounded in the sense that Judah was not trying to do anything of the sort with regard to stealing away their king. But they couldn't be convinced of that. Yet it tells us in the last part of verse 43, yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now that word fiercer is implying that there was a great deal of anger that was being generated between the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. That was indeed taking place. And this is not the first time that there has been a great deal of confusion and a great deal of animosity between the northern tribes and the southern tribe. When David began to reign many, many years ago, he reigned over Judah for seven years, remember. And it took a great deal of effort on his part to convince the people of Israel to unite with him. Until finally, after seven years of a lot of war between Israel, who were under Saul's son Ishbosheth, 
And when he died, finally, the nation of Israel, the ten tribes, began to soften and they began to agree to unite with Judah under David's leadership. So David's reign started out as a divided kingdom. He brought it together with great wisdom from the Lord to make it happen. And he reigned for those 30 plus years in Jerusalem over the entire nation until Absalom's rebellion. And now that David is coming back into Jerusalem to be their king once again, that splitting of the nation of the people of God was beginning to foment once more. And it was all because of jealousy. Frankly, jealousy has done more harm to the people of God than perhaps anything else, any other sin that we could ever have committed. We should be very, very careful to avoid being jealous of anyone in the kingdom of God. We all are on the same playing field. We are all sons and daughters of the king. There is no difference between any of us. No hierarchy involved in the servants of God in the church as we know it. At least that's how it should be. Unfortunately, that's not how it is. But in this church, in this little tiny fellowship, may it never be said of us that we have people who are more important and people who are less important. May it never be said that we have people who are more prominent, more powerful, more knowledgeable, people who are puffed up, people who are proud and arrogant, do not belong in the family of God. And I'm grateful for my friends that I have here at Safe Harbor Church. I know that we aren't perfect, but I do know also that one of the things that stands out, at least in my mind, is that we're a fellowship of like-minded believers who love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. May it always be so, and may God richly bless each one of us as we continue to serve Him together, united under the banner of love, in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace and peace.